From India's largest newsroom, I'm Meenal Baghel and this is the Times of India podcast. March 1, it's a bitterly cold evening in Kiev. My guest on the podcast, author and journalist Tim Judah, is sitting on the floor of his hotel room located not far from Kiev's main communication tower. The Russian Air Force is likely to target the tower to destroy communications and Judah is sitting on the floor to protect himself from any possible injuries from flying projectiles should they be an attack while recording the podcast. It's been six days since the war began, but the Russians have still not taken control of the Ukrainian capital, though a vast column of Russian soldiers that stretches 65 kilometers long is crawling slowly but implacably towards Kiev. Tim Judah, who writes for The Economist, the New York Review of Books, The Guardian, among others, has written several books on the war in former Yugoslavia, and he's also the author of In Wartime, Stories from Ukraine. Here he speaks about what's happening on the ground in Ukraine, about Vladimir Putin's increasing isolation, and how a younger generation of Ukrainians has moved decisively towards Europe rather than Russia following the 2014 Maidan Revolution. It's been six days since the war started. Give us a sense of uh, how things are on the ground. Uh, We are seeing extraordinary scenes of common folks like picking up arms and joining the Ukrainian resistance force and also millions of people leaving the country. What is it that you're seeing and how do you see the war? What kind of shape is it taking now? Clearly what happened was that the Russians expected the Ukrainians to collapse uh, within 48 hours, that the government was going to flee and that they would just be... uh, they would just sort of roll into big cities and and to be welcomed. Hmm. Um, uh, but I mean, if they had uh, taken a bit more time to um, to study Ukraine, they would have known that none of that was going to happen. Uh, the U- war in Ukraine really started in 2014. It's been rumbling in the East for ever since then. And the Ukrainian army is much, much more organized uh, and well-armed than it was uh, in 2014. So they've held their ground pretty well. Two days ago, they 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 drove into uh, Kharkiv, which is the second biggest city, hmm. and uh, they were then you know ambushed in the city and and, and driven out. And then what happened was that the uh, Russian spree stepped stepped things up um, by hitting uh, civilian areas. Uh, yesterday, uh, well, sorry, what are we today? Tuesday. So um, Monday, they then um, sent grad missiles into civilian areas, uh, killing. Uh, several dozen people. Uh, then this morning, uh, they uh, uh, they um, sent a missile to hit the uh, central government building in Kharkiv. Uh, and then this evening, or rather, let's say Tuesday evening in uh, Kiev, um, missiles either hit, it's a little bit early to say, either hit or, or hit buildings just 
in front of the TV tower um, here in uh, Kiev. And the Russian Ministry of Defense has also said that it's uh, going to hit um, uh, some buildings uh, here in the center of the city, um, which is why I'm sitting on the floor, because I don't want to be get showered with glass if uh, something hits too uh, close. Um, the SBU building, which is the internal security building, and um, something else that they've said that they're, they're, they're going to hit. So by the time your listeners might you know, hear this, the, those buildings um, might already have, um, have, uh, have been hit. Um, yes, you're right that you know there's a huge uh, outflow um, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of people have left uh, the country and certainly have left uh, Kiev. There's been, you know, in the, in the first couple of days, it was sort of quite orderly. There were a lot of people getting on trains and the train station was quite full, but it wasn't pandemonium. But hmm. my colleagues who've been to the station in the last 48 hours say it's really become panicky now because there are much less uh, trains uh, going. And yes, you're right. Also, thousands of people have been joining what's called the Territorial Defence Force, which is a force set up for civilians to uh, join so that they can um, basically secure sort of rear guard, like secure buildings, um, secure buildings in town and towns and cities and critical infrastructure so that the, the uh, releasing, you know, profess the professional soldiers to go and uh, fight. And, you know, uh, yes, they've been, those people who, who don't want to take up a gun or who are not able to pick, pick up a gun, you know, they've been volunteering and, uh, you know, there's a lot of people filling Molotov cocktails. I've been to a Molotov cocktail factory uh, here and I had no idea um, how many ingredients it takes to make a good Molotov cocktail. You've been in Ukraine for over a month now. Was it your uh, seasoned war reporter's instinct that got you here? Or is it, like most of the world, did you think that there was no chance of a war happening? No, I thought that there was a chance of a war happening, but I have to admit, I didn't think it was going to be as extensive as this. I mean, there was a theory that, uh, you know, that um, Russian troops might um, formally enter the uh breakaway parts of eastern uh, Ukraine. And then there was a theory, well, at the very maximum, they might try and push to the, the limits of the territory that those, that those breakaways claim. But I have to admit, I was, uh, you know, I, although um, people said that it was possible that, um, that, um, that Vladimir Putin would launch an all-out attempt to basically destroy Ukraine, I thought that was really rather far-fetched. But, um, you know, I was wrong. Post the Second World War, this is the second big war breaking out in Europe. You've covered the war in Yugoslavia. You're now covering the second one too. Do you see, is it at all comparable? Well, there, you know, there, there are some comparisons, but there are things which are uh, very uh, different. Um, one of the most interesting things uh, is that um, Putin has made a big show or has, has has made a big point of saying that Russians and Ukrainians are really one people. And a lot of Ukrainians don't agree with that at all. Mm. But in, in, in the former Yugoslavia, people didn't think that. People thought people were either Bosniaks, Bosnian Muslims, or Serbs, or Croats, or Kosovo Albanians. Their identities were, um, you know, very very, very clear. And it wasn't, you know, I mean, the Serbs didn't, except for a few kind of extreme, extreme, extreme 
kind of academics right at the very beginning where some Serbs tried to sort of claim that Croats didn't exist, but they, they were sort of renegade Serbs, which, I mean, which they very rapidly forgot. Um, you know, the, 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 no one really claimed, like Putin, that uh, he was coming into sort of, which is what he's doing, he's coming to liberate this country from um, drug-dealing Nazis, which is such a bizarre and ridiculous claim, yeah, especially since the president of um, the president of Ukraine is a former is Jewish and a former comedian. But, you know, that's what he's telling his people. And um, they don't have much access to free media in Russia. So it'll take a bit of time for everybody to understand that's not really the case. In your piece in the FT, which I was reading, you actually quoted Lenin at the end to talk about, you know, there are decades when nothing happens and then weeks when decades happen. How do you think this last six days have changed Europe? Well, I mean, the single most fundamental thing is that sort of is that the Germans have decided to lift their post-war ban on supplying lethal weapons. I mean, that's that's major, and that unleashes a lot of that or unleashes a lot within the EU itself, and will hopefully make the EU kind of much more robust on questions of uh, of um, security than it, than it has been in the past. But I think that is the single most important thing um, that's happened. I mean. You know, Putin was talking about the expansion of NATO and complaining about the expansion of, of, of NATO, but he's just reminds everybody with, with, with missiles about why NATO exists, you know, is to defend countries that, that are attacked. I mean, obviously, Ukraine is not one of them, but, you know, Poland, the Baltic states, Romania, Bulgaria, Czech, Czech, Czechia, Slovakia... Hungary, they you know they were all under Russian either well originally Russian occupation, but all under Soviet domination uh, for 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 decades. You know that's why they joined NATO. It wasn't because NATO wanted to expand; it was because they wanted to be protected. And now we know. Well, now we now if it was not clear to anyone why, it should now be very clear to everybody why. Today, I think EU has uh, sort of accepted Ukraine's uh, application to join the EU. Uh, though I think the process has yet to begin. Um, is, do you see that happening anytime soon? No, that, that's symbolic. I mean, that's that's absolutely symbolic. And if they say something positive, that would be symbolic because it's an incredibly complicated process. And, you know, in the, the Balkans, the Western Balkan countries, we've got six Western Balkan countries which are sort of have got this accession process. And, uh, you know, it's taking... It's taking uh, decades and countries where there are, you know, serious problems, for example, like, um, uh, like, like, like Bosnia or like Kosovo, although they have what's called a perspective, so they couldn't theoretically join, they're not actually even candidate members. So the idea of Ukraine becoming, a, 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 you know, a candidate to join the EU is, 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 is far-fetched, I think. I mean, but they, they may do something symbolic. I mean... But Ukraine was never even given what's called a perspective before. It was the Western Balkans were given a perspective and told, you know, like one day, sooner or later, one day you will join. But no one ever, they never said that about Ukraine. You know, maybe they will change the policy and say, like, one day when you're ready, you might join. But I mean, that's certainly not, nothing's going to happen in the near future. But this war is also so much about the idea of Europe with so many refugees uh, moving in. Is there, uh, do you think that, Europe's sentiment towards Ukraine, is it ambiguous, uh, is it complicated? How, how do you see that playing out? 
No, I think it's surprisingly how how much support in Europe there's been for Ukraine because Ukraine has been, if you live in, in at least in Western Europe, you know, Ukraine has always been kind of like somewhat peripherals. People confuse it with, with Russia, etc. So the fact that you've had these huge demonstrations of support in, in, in Western Europe and, and the rest of Europe, of course, you know, is it's really quite is quite significant, I think. And I think that in that sense that um, that the Putin really kind of miscalculated. Um, and he's really kind of, and, and the fact is that, you know, don't forget that Putin is this kind of stiff, what, almost 70-year-old and, 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 and what we've seen in the last couple of weeks have been him and his famous long tables. And, and, and we've seen Zelensky doing selfies Absolutely. You know, in the centre of Kiev going... Mm. I'm here because he's a younger generation. He understands how to communicate it. So they've completely captured the, 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 I mean, it's sort of, I don't like this phrase, sort of information narrative or the, but, but that's what they've done. Hmm. You know, they've, they've completely captured it and, and, uh, 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 you know, and Russia's, Russia's really lost the story, certainly in Europe. Uh, talking about Putin, I mean, he's been, uh, you know, he's, traditionally been like a remote, slightly icy figure. But in the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing almost like a, you know, viscerally emotional Putin. We also saw what he did with his security uh, uh, council people. What do you think is going on? Uh, what is this urgent need that he has to uh, to go on this war? You know, the, the fact is that no one knows. And I mean, a lot of people will opine and tell you that they think that they know, but they don't know. I think that what's happened is that, is that you know, that we miscalculated, we in the, in the West anyway, miscalculated what Putin was thinking of doing, calculating, because we use an out-of-date paradigm in the sense that we talk about the Putin regime, and that implies, you know, not that it's not just like one man. It's like a, a kind of a whole elite and oligarchs and security officials and you know all sorts of other parts of the Russian system feeding into the feeding feeding into decision making. And I think that what we haven't understood or haven't noticed is that in the last couple of years, it's really become this kind of completely personal regime. Everything is up to Putin. It's like. Nobody else counts anymore. And the fact is that because of COVID, he's been very isolated. He's been, he's been clearly paranoid about COVID, isolated, you know, in the last two years, um, seeing very few people. And, you know, so he's changed. I've been reading reports saying President Macron of France was saying that when he saw him recently, he just said, compared to the man that he had seen a few years before, he was just not the same person. So Putin has, has changed, he's become more isolated, and we don't know what he's thinking. I mean, what he's done has been so completely insane. And Ukraine, country you know well, do you think there will be greater Europe involvement in the war? Uh, do you see them banding together better? I mean, I think a lot's going to happen. Depends on what's going to happen in the next the next two or three days. Frankly, I think it's kind of very, very unclear. You know, if they really kind of un start unleashing more and more attacks on on civilian areas, I mean, I just don't have a crystal ball. I think it's all down to one man. No one knows what he's going to do, and no one was predicting. 
No one was predicting it a week ago that you know that, that Russia would be sending you know attacking civilian areas with Grad missiles and sending columns of hundreds of tens of thousands of troops you know all over U- Ukraine. It's like it's it's so kind of it's so out of lunch if you like that he's reported to be just you know incredibly angry because he was under the impression that Ukraine was going to collapse mm. and uh, and it would all be over and done and dusted in in two days. I mean I don't know why he thought that. I could have told him that would that wasn't going to happen <laughs> if he'd asked me, but he didn't he didn't ask me. But I think that it's possible that he and a a small coterie of people around him genuinely believed that Ukraine is kind of ruled by a very thin group of kind of oligarchs and um, oligarchs and extreme Ukrainian nationalists, and that underneath the vast majority of Ukrainians were extremely pro-Russian and, and, and friendly to Russia. But it is not the case. You know, the fact is that it that may have been that in, until 2014, until they annexed Crimea and then began the war in, in the east, the vast majority of Ukrainians were pretty Russia friendly. And people do have a lot of friends and family and, and, and connections in, in Ukraine. But I think that, you know, that, that's changed. What, what they did in 2014 and, and, and the war in, in the east, you know, turned a lot of people against Russia. And, and, and you've now got also this new generation, the younger people who, you know, the people who are 20 now, mm. it's, it, you know, it's completely different because in 2017, visas were abolished for, for the Schengen zone in Europe, but cheap flights, right, cheap flights to, 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 to most of, to of Europe. So their whole kind of worldview has changed in the sense that they, they just have just become Europeans. It's like, Anybody else in Europe, they can travel to Europe and go on Europe to go to Europe, just like literally, just like 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 anybody from Portugal to London to to, to Italy, and therefore the traditional focus of where Ukrainians look to, especially, has changed. It was it was always Moscow, but it isn't anymore, mm. and that's a fundamental change, especially among the younger generations. And also, don't forget, you've got to be like getting on for forty now to remember the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was not Russia, but still, older generations tend to be sort of much more pro-Russian. They kind of have this nostalgia for their youth, and they and, and they conflate Russia and uh, and the Soviet Union, and therefore, there's this, they tend to older people, not all of them by any means, but they they do tend to sort of you know have this kind of friendly view to much more friendly view towards Russia because it kind of you know just kind of. Um, you know, they're thinking about this sort of like rosy times of their youth and and, and, and Russia and the Soviet Union, they, they conflate in their minds. But that's not the case with younger people. Mm. Mm. So is there is there a sort of a fair amount of unanimity in terms of this anti-Russia sentiment that's now building up? The Ukrainian elite, for instance, what would their sentiment be like? It depends where you are. So if you're in Lviv in the far west, it would certainly be 100%. But you go to a place like Odessa, which was traditionally kind of, you know, it was a, it was a city of the Russian Empire hmm. from the 18th century, but, um, and, and Russian-speaking and traditionally pro-Russian. But to give you an example of, 
to give you an example, I went to see people in the city hall and they said what worries them is a third of the councillors in the city hall were from parties which could be deemed pro-Russian. They were worried that if there's a Russian attack, those 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 um, deputies of the city council could sort of start kind of try and lead pro-Russian civilians to try and grab buildings or, or, or generally cause trouble. Mm-hmm. So it depends where you are. But I also think that it's possible that the fact that Russia has attacked will traumatize pro-Russians actually in the country because, you know, they're the people who, I think very few people believed this was going to happen. But people tell me, say, the people who disbelieve that Russia is about to attack the most of all are the pro-Russians. They go like, why would they attack us? Because like, because they're our, they're our brothers. Hmm. In fact, I went to the market here in Kiev the other, the other day. And I said, aren't you worried? And people go, no, like, why are we worried? They're not going to attack us. It was a huge amount of denial. But I remember there was one woman who started shouting at me. And she said, have you got a brother? Have you got a brother? And I'm going, well, yes. She says, well, would your brother attack you? And I'm going, well, no. She said, well, there you are. See, Russia's never going to attack us. So those people are going to be under the, you know, real shock. And a lot of those people, well, you know, I mean, it will mean the end of kind of Putin's idea of Russians and Ukrainians being one people for 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 those who believed it. Former Soviet Union states like Belarus or Kazakhstan. I mean, the, the, he seems to have kind of uh, Georgia, his his little foray in Georgia. Putin. I mean, he seems to have also strengthened uh, the idea of a Russian Federation. There's a huge amount of difference between those countries. I mean, there's a huge amount. The first is Belarus, Belarus's identity, as opposed to Ukrainian identity, was is was always much weaker. I mean, the amount of people who speak Russian, who speak Belarusian, is about. I think. I mean, I may be wrong. It's about ten percent. The vast majority of people speak Russian. And uh, but the fact is that you know there has been. We saw that last year with, with huge you know, demonstrations against Lukashenko. And Lukashenko has had to turn for his survival to Russia. And as a result, you know, Russia's basically kind of taken over. I mean, Belarus is, yes. is independent now. It, like it, a it, but I think that at the, at the end of the day, when it comes to, like, for example, Kazakhstan, the Russians aren't that interested. You know, the, the, you know, the Russian ethnic politicians who think about the sort of ethnic things, you know, they think about Russia... Belarus and Ukraine. That's the sort of core of the form, core Slavic part of the uh, of the Russian Empire, and and that's what they think about. I mean, Georgia is kind of like a bit marginal, but it's it's Ukraine, which is something which strikes at the very heart of uh, Russian nationalist identity, because they say that Russia, the history of Russia began here in Kiev, and you know that Kiev is the queen of Russian cities, etc. But, you know, things have changed. Things have uh, moved on in the last thousand years. And uh, Kiev is not the same place that it was uh, a thousand years ago. And it's certainly not, and it's not the same place it was even in 2014. Today's episode is produced by Arun George and Sunai Marathi. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, Subscribe to us. We are available on TOI Plus, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, 
and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, reach us at tuipodcast at timesinternet.in.